Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Exodus 25, verse 1 to 22. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from anyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ramskin, dyed red, and other type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the epiod and breastplate. Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Let them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold mounting around it. Cast four gold rings for the other. Um, Then make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. Then put the ark, the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an anointment cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the other end. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim, that are over the Ark of the Covenant Law, I will meet with you and give you my commandments for the Israelites. Exodus 29, verse 42 to 46. For the generations to come, this this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Exodus 39 verse 42 and 43. The Israelites had done all the work as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. I've met uh, lots of uh, people who've tried to read the Bible from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation, uh, believers and non-believers. And uh, they're fine with Genesis. They might you know, have a few questions at the start, but they're fine with Genesis, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, J- uh, Jacob, Joseph. They're pretty riveting stories. And they're fine with the start of Exodus, 
the calling of Moses, the burning bush, the plagues, the rescue out of Egypt, uh, the coming to Mount Sinai, receiving the law, the golden calf story, and all that drama that we had last week. And then they get right to the end of Exodus, uh, sort of chapters 24 all the way to the end, and we get details about colored, dyed, you know, leather and measurements of a, of a tent. And it just seems very boring and monotonous, unnecessary and tedious. Um, and what's painful for many modern readers is that in chapters 25 to 31 of Exodus, you get God telling Moses, I want you to build a tent where I'm going to be and, uh, and, and hear all the details. And then in verses 35 to 40, you get exactly the same thing again, except just the building of it, almost word for word, though there's some variation, but not much. So 13 of the last 16 chapters of Exodus, we get details and details about a table, the lampstand, the altar, the courtyard, the oil, the priestly garments, the wash basin, acacia wood, scarlet yarn, gold hooks, ram skin dyed red, and bronze basin for washing. And the modern reader goes, what is all this about? And I mean, I guess a bigger question some people have is, is the Bible really the Word of God? And if it is, why is it so boring at points? And you get to chapters like this, and you just can't make head nor tail, and you skip it. And even if it's not the book of Exodus, I'm sure many of you have had that experience. You know, I love some of the stories in the Old Testament. I love the the Gospels of Jesus. I, I, I I love the book of Acts, the story of the early churches. But then there's bits in the Old Testament that just are random and tedious and detailed, and I don't know what to do with them, and they seem so unnecessary, so I skip over them. Well, my hope this week and next week is to say woe to us if we were to skip over the detail, uh, because the detail is vital, and I want us to get a hold of it in such a way as if we really understand all the detail that, the, uh, that, 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 that are in the tabernacle and why we have all this detail, it would transform our lives, it really would. And it would transform this church. And it would have a potential to transform this city. Because the tabernacle, this tent, is in essence, uh, is all about God saying, I want to come and make my home among my people. That's what the tabernacle is. I want to come and make my home among my people. I want to dwell with you is the language of the Bible. And here's the thing. I would argue that is the message of the Bible. The whole Bible. If you did Genesis to Revelation... It's God saying, I want to come and make my home among my people. I want to know them intimately. I want to know them personally. I want to know them powerfully. I want to be at home amongst you and that you might be at home with me. And then the world would all be right. So let's look at the detail of this tabernacle. You may have saw me pacing up and down during the news. I forgot to take the measurements of this hall to help you. This is what the tabernacle kind of looked like if you reconstruct it. There's the main area, uh, which, is, uh, which is, you know, encloses everything else, called the courtyard. You'll notice it has no roof. And uh, it's 46 meters uh, wide and 23 meters long. So it's about twice as wide as this hall and about three times as long as this hall. It's basically a series of curtains, and the curtains are held together by posts and a system of uh, bronze clasps and loops. Okay? And then there's the courtyard. So once you get inside, this is the detail. And uh, this is where you have the altar of burnt offering on the outside, the red box, and the lava, or the wash basin, uh, there. And then once you move a bit further, uh, the the altar was for sacrificing animals, for the the sacrifice of the sins of the people. And the the lava, or the wash basin, was for for the priests to be able to wash and to cleanse themselves, maybe of the blood and things that was all over them from the sacrifices. 
Then we move from the courtyard into the tabernacle itself, which is, two, another, which is a tent within the courtyard, and uh, it's divided by a curtain. And this one is about as wide as this building, uh, but only a meter and a half, a meter and eight, 1.8 meters, so about you know, somewhere between uh, here and Craig to the back. So it's quite narrow and, and thin. And so you go behind the first curtain into the, uh, into the tabernacle, and we have what's called the holy place, where priests could go. And in the holy place, we have three objects. You have the table for bread, symbolizing intimacy like a meal, the candlestick, and the altar for incense. And each of them has significance. I'm only going to look at one of them today. Uh, the candlestick. You might have seen this. It's very important to the, the Jewish tradition. It is shaped like a tree, and it has a flower-like cups with buds and blossoms, which we're going to see is very significant, and I'm going to show you that in a moment. Then we move behind the first curtain and into the Holy of Holies. We've gone from the holy place into the Holy, holy of Holies, and the curtain, uh, which had lots of cherubim woven into it, is 30 feet high and as thick as my hand. It's a big, thick curtain, and only the high priest could go in here, and that once a year after sacrificing for his own sins. And inside there, we have what's called, and you can see at the ark, the Ark of the Covenant, which looked a bit like this. This contained the Ten Commandments that God had just given Moses. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And as you can see, there's poles, and there was quite a lot of detail about how uh, you had to carry it on poles. And on top of the ark, there's what's called an atonement cover, and either side of that are these two enormous cherubim. Uh, And it says this in verse 22, There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all the commands for the Israelites. There you have it. That's what the tabernacle is about. God wants to come and dwell on earth. And here's where he's going to do it. It was a place where God would meet with his people. It was a place where heaven and earth connected. This was the place of God's undiluted, unmediated presence. God wanted to make his home, and he made it in a tent amongst the Israelites. Now, the the tabernacle, as I said, is full of symbolism. And I want to look at some of them. Cherubim. You've noticed that cherubim are everywhere. They're over the ark. They're in the curtains. Why are cherubs important? Wherever God turns up in the Bible, whether in heaven or on earth, angels are present. Angels signify the presence of God. So God is present in this tabernacle. There's purple and gold. There's loads of purple and gold. And when 500 years later, Solomon builds the temple, which is a, a permanent tabernacle, So this is like a temporary one that moves with the Israelites. Then there becomes a permanent one in Jerusalem many years later. There's gold everywhere. There's gold, 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 gold. Why are purple and gold important? Well, this isn't any old home. This is a palace. This is the home of a king. This tabernacle is fit for royalty. God is coming to dwell with his people as their king. And then there's floral images I've already talked about the tree-shaped lamps, uh, but if you read the chapters about the priestly garments, the priests went into the tabernacle, it talks about their garments being woven with pomegranate shapes, the fruit, with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. So there's a tree, and there's fruit. What does that remind you of? A tree and fruit, and a place where God dwells with his people as king. We're supposed to think of the Garden of Eden. Thank you, Maria. The whole story, the whole, of the, and we've got so many more details I couldn't look at. It's about the Garden of Eden. It's, I'm trying to recreate what we had originally, God is saying. The whole of this is a story of recreation. 
And there's more. For example, between chapters 19 and 40, Moses goes up and down Mount Sinai to chat with God seven times. And seven times it says, the Lord said to Moses as he's building this tabernacle, which reminds us of that phrase, and the Lord said, let there be light. And the Lord said, let us make mankind in our image. And so we've got this idea that the original creation and the recreation takes seven episodes and seven, this number of completion and perfection. The author wants us to link the original creation of the heavens and earth with the creation of his tabernacle. And then when it's complete, in chapter 39, if you want to look at your hand out there, what happened? The Israelites had done all the work the Lord had commanded them. Moses inspects the work, saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded, and blessed them. What does God do at the end of the original creation? He inspects his work. He sees it is good. He's very pleased, and then he blesses it. Just as in Genesis 2, so here in Exodus 39, we have a moment of seeing and being pleased and blessing because the work was finished. The tabernacle is a cosmic recreation. God is saying, I want to come back. I want to join heaven and earth again like they were in Eden. I want to bring splendor, beauty into this sin-stained world. I want to bring order and clarity into a chaotic world. And so God says, I'm going to give you 13 chapters of detail because there's no room for chaos in my universe. I want to bring order back to all the things that have gone awry. It may seem detailed and boring to us, but God's saying, I'm, I'm undertaking an incredible act of recreation, as dramatic as important as the first creation. One commentator put it like this, in the midst of a fallen world, exiled from the garden, the original heaven on earth, God undertakes another act of creation, a building project signifying a return to pre-fall splendor. The tabernacle, therefore, is laden with redemptive significance, not just because of the sacrifices and offerings within its walls, but because of what it is, a piece of holy ground amid a world that has lost its way. And so we begin to see why the writer of Exodus devotes so much space to its description. So to understand the tabernacle, we have to understand the story so far. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he put mankind in, in, in the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, there was the undiluted, unmediated presence of God, and everything was great. Their relationship with God was great, with one another, their relationship with themselves and with the planet. There was harmony, peace, no disease, no death, no, just nakedness and no fear, no hiding, no spinning. It was honesty. There was love and delight. In the Garden of Eden, heaven was on earth, and everything was right. When God is at home with us, and we're at home with Him, the world is right. God made us to dwell in His presence. But humanity said, no, we want to be our own rulers, our own masters, our own saviors. And so we turned from God, and as all that happened, everything started to unravel. And in the Garden of Eden story, if you know, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, and they're sent out of Eden, and a flaming, flashing sword is being held by a cherub at the entrance to stop the way back to the tree of life. Access to God's unmediated, undiluted presence was barred. There's a guard, there's a cherub, there's a sword, just as there's a cherub guarding the way to the Holy of Holies on the curtain and on the ark. And as mankind drifted from God and we lost his presence, we started to doubt ourselves. We started to have fear. We started to exploit our planet. We started to fight and, and hate and envy 
one another. And we started to hide from God. And ever since that God-forsaken day, mankind has always tried to do that, to hide, to cover up, to spin the truth. We've been discontent. We're envious of one another. Because we lost his presence, everything else unraveled. But with the building of the tabernacle, God is saying, I want to undo all of that. That's what the gold, the purple, the tree, the fruit, the cherubs, the number seven are all about. God is saying, I'm back. I'm back as king. I'm back to dwell with my people. I'm on a rescue operation. I want to fix all the brokenness. I want to bring heaven to earth. I want to bring my kingdom to earth. And just like the original creation, he brings order out of chaos. He brings light out of darkness. He brings purpose to those who are lost. He brings peace where there's fighting and division. He brings, where there's mourning, he brings dancing. As we understand Israel's life and what it was supposed to be like under God as king, it's a life of blessing and flourishing. I want to restore what was lost in Eden. And so we shout, hooray, hallelujah, hosanna, the king is back. Everything's going to be okay. We're going to fix this broken world. But can you see there's a real problem with God coming back? Can you see the difference between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle? No one can get near his presence. The book of Exodus ends on a, an amazingly spectacular, dramatic anticlimax. God's presence comes in chapter 40, and then it says, Not even Moses could enter. No one can get near the Holy of Holies. This presence that we long for, that satisfies our heart, that makes the world all right, God at home with us, we're at home with him, we can't get in. And the next book of the Bible, Leviticus, says that only one man, the high priest, once a year, the Day of Atonement, after sacrificing for his own sins, can enter. The king is back, but it's not his undiluted, unmediated presence that makes the world all right. One of the details God gave to Moses was, as I said, was the ark was to be carried on poles. And the ark was never to be touched by human hands. If you read on in the Bible story into 2 Samuel chapter 6, there's a moment where the ark has been captured by the Philistines. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, God's presence is gone and they're devastated. And uh, David wins a great victory and he's bringing the cart back and there's dancing and there's singing and there's tambourines and there's drums and everyone's in this great celebrating. The king is coming back and the ark has been pulled on an oxen and has all the harps and all the songs and all the lyres and all the tambourines and everyone is celebrating and going, God is coming back. We have the ark. We've captured it from the Philistines. The king is returning. Hosanna, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Then it says the oxen stumbled and the ark started to slide and a man called Uzzah reached out his hand and this is what happened. He touched the ark. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of this irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died beside the ark of God. You cannot just touch the ark. That's why there was details about poles and rings. God's presence isn't something you can just take for granted. He's a consuming fire. You can't just play with God and go, oh, this is how I'll treat you. So paradoxically, although paradoxically, although the tabernacle spoke of God being close and dwelling, everything about the tabernacle spoke of distance and separation. I mean, it was almost like a slaughterhouse. That's why the lava was there for the priests. They're making so many sacrifices so people could be right with God. There was blood. It must have stank. And the further you go in, the more inaccessible it becomes, the more curtains that are there. It's not easy 
to enter God's presence. There may not have been a flaming, flashing sword, but there was plenty of blood and there were plenty of barriers. So when David finally brings the ark back, God's appointed servants, the Levites this time, carried the ark on poles, as God had said to do. And every six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David had realized, he'd suddenly understood, I must pay attention. The presence of God is not something to be treated lightly, not to be messed around with. And so there's awe and thanksgiving and reverence, as well as thanksgiving, as well as joy and songs. And we see this in the book of Exodus itself. Do you remember when God, when Moses encounters God on Mount Sinai at the burning bush? But he has to take his sandals off because this is holy ground. You don't just walk straight in. And when God comes down on Mount Sinai, well, only Moses can go to the top and the people have to stay around the bottom or else they might die. And this is what we learn about when God's presence comes. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. When God's presence comes, mountains tremble violently. So we have this paradox. We can't live without God's presence. It's what we were made for. When he's at home with us and we're at home with him. But we can't come near. There must be blood. He's a holy God. He's a consuming fire. And he will destroy us if we get close. We're like the U2 song, I can't live with or without you. So how's the problem solved? Do you remember this famous verse? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that word dwelling among us, really accurately translated, deliberately put there by John, is tabernacled. The word tabernacled. The word was God's presence on earth. God's unmediated, undiluted, his glory. And we saw his glory. That's what John says. He's the one that brings heaven to earth. He restores what was lost in Eden. He's coming to be king amongst us. And what did we see when Jesus was king? The sea was stilled, the blind man saw, the cripple leapt for joy, the deaf heard, people were set free, relationship was restored, heaven on earth, what we were made for. We saw his glory, no more chaos, brokenness, darkness. People who were wandering like sheep without a shepherd found purpose. He turned our mourning into feasting. He turned water into wine. We saw his glory. In other words, when you get Jesus, you get his presence. You get the presence of God. Everything falls into place. He showed us what the kingdom of God was like. He tabernacled amongst us. He brought heaven to earth. It's amazing to think that the tabernacle was wandering around the desert for 40 years. And then in Jesus, it's walking around the streets of Jerusalem. The tabernacle, the place where God dwells on earth, a portable tabernacle, but not just for Moses, not just for the priests, not just for the Levites. Anyone can go and see Jesus. In fact, you can touch Jesus and you don't die, you get healed. That's the difference. Why? Because he was going to be killed for you. Why did Jesus get killed? What did they actually bring up at his trial? They made, Jesus said loads of things that offended people. Well, what did they actually bring when the court, in a sense, was, was called? They complained about this. This fellow said, I'm going to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. He was talking about himself. This is the moment they go, right, we've got to kill him. 
As I said, the temporary movable tabernacle under Moses became the permanent and stationary temple under King Solomon. When Jesus says, you can destroy me and I'll rebuild it in three days, I'm the temple. He says, I'm the heart of reality. I'm the presence of God. I'm, I'm where you see God's glory. But the only way back for us was through the, a flaming, flashing sword. Someone has to pay. Someone has to die for us to enter the Holy of Holies. So Jesus is saying, I'm the glory. I'm the presence of God on earth. But he's also saying, everything that was required for God to be present on earth, I fulfill. I'm the basin. I'm the altar. I'm the priest. I'm the sacrifice. I'm the incense. I'm everything. Every detail you've read, everything that was required, I fulfill it all for you. And what do all the gospel writers say at the moment he dies? What do they all say? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? Because we have the ultimate sacrifice. Just as animals were ripped apart on the altar and burnt, consumed, so Jesus is ripped apart on the cross, consumed, as he enters the consuming fire with our sin on his shoulders. And God says, we won't need the veil anymore. We can shut that away. Now God's presence is available. And what does Jesus cry out after that? It is finished. In Genesis chapter 2, we have a moment where God says, I look at my work, I'm satisfied, it's finished. I'm pleased. And he blesses it. In Exodus chapter 39, we have a moment where Moses looks at the work and he sees it, he inspects it, he's pleased with it, and he says it's finished, and he blesses it. Here we have Jesus saying, I've come to do the work God gave me of bringing heaven to earth, of restoring people to enter the presence of God without fear, and it is finished. The paradox of the presence of God has been solved in Jesus. We can enter the undiluted, unmediated presence of God with not, without being killed. But here's where I want to finish. What's really mind-blowing is how the New Testament writers then say, well, in light of this, what happens to the tabernacle? Where does it go? It was there in the desert. It goes into Solomon, into the temple. It came in Jesus. Where does this presence go? In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is speaking to this ragtag, I imagine about the size of this church. And they're a mess, this church in Corinth. And Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. Do you remember that phrase from that commentator? Now the church is a piece of holy ground amidst a world that has lost its way. And then speaking to individuals, this was to the church corporately, he says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who have you received from God? It's a staggering claim. The presence of God which shakes mountains, kills on contact, now lives in you. As we gather today to sing songs, to praise Jesus' name, to learn from his word, to encourage one another, as we go about our week as, as individuals, and God says, I've got my... God says, I've got my portable tabernacles. They're walking around Dublin this week. That's the place, plus the place of my unmediated, undiluted presence. And if people could touch them and get in contact with them and really know who they were and they could share about me, 
the world would be a better place. My healing would come. We'd start to cover the earth with the glory of God as the waters covered at sea as one day it's going to be. God's presence would cover everything. We as individuals, us as a church, we're the place where God's presence dwells. So, three applications. What is your view of the Holy Spirit? God is our Father. He loves us. We know Him through Jesus. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We submit to Him. We're saved by His grace. The Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence with us. Do you have too small a view of the person and the work of the Spirit? We're temples. God lives in us by His Holy Spirit. The church, what's your view of the church? Do you have a small view of the church? We're a piece of holy ground amidst the world that has lost its way. And God says, I'm starting an act, a world, I'm doing some recreation work right here that's going to go on forever. The world around might fade away, and, but this piece of earth, this, this, this sphere I'm opened up is going to last forever. But what's your view of yourself as a Christian, if you are a Christian here today? God lives in you. I can imagine that every Israelite would have gone, oh, I wish I could get close to the Holy of Holies, but only one man... God lives in you. Don't take it for granted. Have a sense of awe and wonder, excitement, exhilaration. <gasps> Me? I'm a mess. Yeah. He came to live in you. And he wants to bring change. This brings such hope to all of us. You know, bad habits, sinful behaviors, things that you've never managed to change over many years, people that control you because their opinion matters too much to you, yeah, unhelpful you know, habits and ruts that you're into, and you think, I'm never going to change. The presence that shakes mountains, that kills on contacts, lives in you. Have hope. Of course you can change. Stop looking at yourself and start going, I understand the role of the Holy Spirit. So many of us have low expectations of change in our lives because we have low expectations of the Holy Spirit. Ask him, Lord, I want to believe this, that you really live in me. The undiluted, unmediated presence of God and that you could change me. And through changing me as I walk around Dublin, I might bring your presence to others. Now, this is week one of two. Next week, I'm going to go into real details. How does the Holy Spirit change us? We're going to look at the story of when Moses goes up and his face comes down radiant and what that means for us. But just one more piece of application. How does this verse in 1 Corinthians 6 end? He says, so he says do, not, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What is the context, if you know 1 Corinthians 6? Sexual immorality. How does Paul encourage a church to live according to God's standard of sex only within marriage? It's a big issue today. It was a big issue then. How does Paul go, I want to motivate you to do that? He says, think about the temple, the place where God's presence dwelt. And he says, what it would be appropriate and inappropriate behavior for the temple? To be sexually loose in the temple? No. Imagine a cathedral today. You don't walk in there. You know, there's a sense of awe and reverence. So Paul says, if you wouldn't do it in the temple, don't do it because you're the temple. So understanding you're the temple of God not only gives you hope for change, God lives in me. It gives you a sense of reverence and awe about it. How to respect yourself because God has, and respect God because God has chosen to live in you. Make decisions, take actions that are appropriate for being the temple of God. I hope you have a higher view of the Holy Spirit after today. I hope you have a higher view of the church, and I hope you have a higher view of what it is to be a Christian. You're a, you're a portable tabernacle, and you're wandering around Dublin, 
And God says, I've got my tabernacles everywhere. They're representing me. And when you come together as a church, this is a piece of holy ground amidst a world that has gone awry. Let's stand, let's pray, we're going to sing, and I'll hand back to the band. Just take a moment. Do you need to think about the role of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you need to think about the value of the church? Do you need to think about your own life and the things you long for changing that you maybe have given up on? And this has given you hope again. As I said, next week we'll go into detail on that. Let's take a moment. We thank you, Lord, that the whole story of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is a story of you saying, I want to make my home amongst my people. I want to be at home with them so they might be at home with me. And I thank you, Lord, in this moment in Exodus, in this moment in the biblical story and, and the historical story of God's people, you come and you come in the shape of this tabernacle. But now, today, you live in us because of what Jesus has done, and we thank you. I pray, Lord, for those that have given up hope for change in their lives, whether from emotions or habits or sinful behaviors or being controlled by people. Lord, give us hope. You're here. You live in us. For those of us that have too low a view, we don't consider who the Holy Spirit is and, and what you do. We pray, Holy Spirit, enlighten us. Open the eyes of our heart to see who you are and what it means to be a Christian. It's not just believing certain truths. It's that you live in us. And I pray this week, Lord, as we go around Dublin and all the cities that we find ourselves in, we'd remember we're portable tabernacles. We're wandering around and you're within us and you're wanting to bring change to us. So thank you, Lord, for this great message. And even as we sing now, may we sense again your presence amongst us. In Jesus' name.